You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. We're going to do something today that we have not done. Turn the microphone over to the, uh, to the, to the mob. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's not fair. I have on the line with me, uh, two longtime members, longtime supporters, uh, people I've been in communication with and chatted with in, in many ways for years. I've gotten a chance to meet both of them now. They've been emailing me really uh, maybe a little bit extra post-election saying, hey, Chuck, we've got some things we want to talk to you about, eh, you know, maybe some ideas that uh, you're brushing up against that we'd like to nudge you in, in one direction or the other. And I thought, let's, let's do this live and let's have this conversation because I think there's a lot of people thinking these things. So welcome to the podcast. My good friend, Elias Krim. Elias, are you in uh, Valparaiso today? I am one of those uh, finalists for the Strong Town competition, Valparaiso, Indiana. Excellent. Also on the line, Grace Potts. Grace, you and I met in Michigan. Tell me what city again? We met in Saginaw. In but Saginaw. I'm now in Ips- yeah, but I'm, I'm now in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Yep, absolutely. Well, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Great to be here. And Grace, I know you uh, very much like me, although even more so. Uh, sometimes have to do these things with kids in the background. So uh, yes. I'm ready for disruptions. If it happens, we're we're good with it. We'll just roll with it. Good deal. Can do. Cool. All right. Elias, why don't you start us out a little bit? I- explain a little bit about Solidarity Hall, who you are, what that place is, and, and why it matters to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know if it matters, but I'll tell you what, what it is. Okay. Um, I hope it matters. You know, it's been several years ago that some people like myself, Grace, and a handful of others, we essentially met really on Facebook. And the thing we were thinking about was, first of all, our frustration with kind of the binary political thing. And everybody everybody knew that. But more than that, we were also interested in trying to kind of rethink how you build community. And so we all seem to have a kind of a civic ambition we seem to have kind of a DIY mentality about it. Um, we ran into strong towns about that about that time as well. But we we started out as really a group blog. So Solidarity Hall, our name is partly taken from the uh, Polish uprising uh, in the 1980s. We wanted to talk about community and we wanted to think about and reflect on people like Wendell Berry, Jane Jacobs, E.F. Schumacher, Dorothy Day, and some kind of, I don't know, indie economics, you might call it, some kind of third way, uh, because we saw there was a lot of great thought going on. There were a lot of great experiments going on, and we thought we could probably look at our own neighborhoods um, a lot smarter if we had conversations with other people that were working on um, similar things. So we started up the blog. We gradually got into a little bit of book publishing. We partly are kind of a faith-based thing in the sense that we got a number of Catholics running around, but we've also got Orthodox and Evangelicals and nothing much. So we're really, we're really about the common good. And I guess you could describe us as kind of like a, a dead cross between a great books group 
and a bunch of community organizers. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> because I am a Catholic, although I, I always make sure and tell people I'm not a, I don't claim to be a good Catholic. Um, I do my. You never should. You no. never should. <laughs> they <laughs> call it you. practicing. You're practicing. Practicing. Don't have it right yet. Still I am practicing. practicing. I don't have it right yet. Keep I'm practicing. I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying. Our conversation has, from time to time, veered into that. We also tend to simply because we, you know, at times deal with some of the national issues. I think we've tried to avoid getting sucked up. I mean, we certainly are not a partisan organization, but we try not to get sucked up in the national narratives. The email you sent me earlier this year, the two of you together, kind of pushed me and said, you know, Chuck, you, you describe yourself sometimes as a libertarian. I tend to, at a national level in particular, be more libertarian in my economics. But, you know, you guys said there's this localism thing that we should really be talking about. And it's not libertarianism in the sense that it's, you know, every hands off, you know, individual liberty, people decide what they're going to do, but it's more of a communitarian. It's more of a, how can we help each other? And I, I'm interested in exploring the idea because I, I'm certainly sympathetic to it. I just have not found the words to express it very well, perhaps. I think that a lot of us are caught in the political binary. We talk a lot about binaries in our um, sort of social conversation in the United States right now. But there's a very real political binary that is a problem that doesn't allow us to discuss all the plethora of realities that are occurring outside that binary. Uh, You kind of touched on it in the most glossing way in your response, rebuttal to the Amazon conversation. And you, you mentioned the centralization of our economy and our government is a problem. You didn't use those words, but you touched on it. And that's, at least for me, that's the lever, that's the leverage point, is centralization versus decentralization. Not left-right, not any of these other things, these binaries we've, we've surfaced and talked about. But that's really the nut to crack in so many things, I think. So on the one hand... It's hard for me to imagine not having a problem with a lot of these big box stores, like on their face, like the way they function. Because if you take the decentralization thing all the way, they are the symptom, the primary symptom of what's really wrong with our economy and the way we function as a society is how centralized we are and how decisions that affect people are made not just miles away physically, but metaphorically miles away from the people that are affected by the decisions. Um, so every argument you make against a place like Amazon or any of these places is actually an argument against the centralized system that we have. So that's that's like sort of one thing to kind of break the binary open and talk more about how there are things outside this, this red-blue dichotomy that we frequently face and experience as, I think, stifling. Not It doesn't allow us to really unearth the issues that are affecting us. It does feel a lot at the national level that the, the places where we have agreement, a bipartisan agreement, is over the need to centralize and the need to essentially, you know, dictate one vision from a top down. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. That's, that's the one place we have bipartisan agreement, and that's the most dangerous place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's the leverage point. We're pushing it as hard as we can the wrong direction. 
you know? So, you know, the, the heat's on and the pot's boiling over, so we turn the heat up. Not quite understanding the nature of the problem we face. It's like saying the welfare state, the warfare state, they're both big projects. I don't want to belabor the Amazon point, but I think it, maybe it is an interesting jumping off point because I, I was sympathetic and I am sympathetic to my colleague Kia Wilson's, you know, concerns over Amazon. I think my kind of pushback with her was, okay, let's transfer that. I don't want to use the word outrage because she was not outraged. She was respectful, but that uncomfortableness with Amazon, let's transfer that to Google and Facebook and Apple and, and, you know, all the other big behemoths. Let's not just, you know, focus on Amazon, but also, you know, there, there is this part of me that says, I feel like Amazon, maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, Amazon is in a sense like slaying these beasts and there's a part of me that cheers for that. Where am I off base there? I was rereading it this morning. I think the way, place that you're off base is that you don't go far enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In that, you know, really, yes, that means we need to talk about Google and we need to talk about um, all these centralized beasts in our lives. They're all symptomatic of this larger problem. So, yeah, it's not just Amazon, mm. it's all of them, and they're all a problem, yes. And they're all a problem for the reasons she outlines, where you drive towards a monopoly, and then they have destabilizing power in a, in a universal way, because they're a monopoly. If they're the only source of these things, and if they move towards that direction, it's really a problem once they have that kind of destabilizing power. Let me, let me back off and just tell from a different perspective. One of the things I've uh, really for a long time, had a problem with was is Whole Foods. I just can't stand Whole Foods. <laughs> now, mind you, I, I, oh, oh, no. I totally shopped there. I totally shopped there <laughs> when they were 800 yards from my house, right? right. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I could walk there, and I would be oh, neighbors and everything, and I would shop there all the time. But there's another reality. They entered a market that was populated by locally owned stores, you know, health food stores and food co-ops. And systematically... Uh, drove them out of business with lost leaders and all kinds of issues like that. In Ann Arbor, they drove out one branch of our local food co-op. In Hartford, there was a great little cheese store, hundreds of varieties of cheese, served the local population for a long time. Drove them out of business, bought their lease, and then closed the location and moved that to the suburbs. And that was only possible once they had kind of a monopoly power. Like that, you know, and mind you, it's correct. We have a regulatory environment that encourages that. And every time you see it, it's just another symptom of this same problem of this regulatory environment that encourages that behavior. It encourages the centralization. It encourages this monopolization of the market and of sectors. So when we are encouraging that all over the place, it's only going to harm us all over the place. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Let, let me go to uh, something more specific to strong towns, which is I, I love the notion of uh, smart cities. Uh, love and, and, and quotation marks. I did a little blog piece on this for a, a blog called New Herbs. And the point was that, as, as you mentioned, Chug, Apple, Microsoft, Google, there is a, a concentration, a consolidation going on here, which is definitely betraying the original promise, the, the great democratizing vision of the Internet. 
And so there are a handful of actually it's younger people that are saying, you know what, this is an extractive process that's going on here. This is not a sharing economy. Excuse me, Airbnb and and all that stuff. It really isn't about sharing. What what we need to figure out is we need to take a really old idea. This is this is the kind of thing Solidarity Hall loves, old ideas. Uh, let's take the idea of cooperatives. That's been around for practically 200 years. And let's match it up with digital platforms. So in our work environment, we will have a way to share and own what we create rather than being the prisoners of the gig economy thing. So, so you have agency. You're, you get regained your agency as a worker. I think strong towns, part of the, the mission has been to regain agency for strong citizens. You know, we've all been told you can't mess with this stuff. It's too complicated. But Chuck, Chuck Marone is liberating us. Is what it amounts to. Sure, I'm going to confess something. I want to do that as a way to get you to explain and expound a little bit more on the cooperative thing. I grew up in a family that was solidly DFL here in, in our state, Democrat farm labor, but very much so from. I'm going to try to be kind to my family because I, I'm not a DFL. I've never really voted DFL. There was a part of me that, as the young person in this DFL family. Uh, saw it as very self-serving and almost hypocritical. I support them because they're going to get me a raise at work, basically. And, uh, there was a part of me that's like, I, you know, no, no, that's not, that's not why you vote for people. In the late eighties, I was a high school kid. Rush Limbaugh was like hot on the radio. I remember listening to him for the first time and going, Oh my gosh, I've never heard anyone talk like this. I've never heard anyone say things like this. I actually listened to Rush about a year ago for the first time in more than a decade. And I don't know how much he has changed versus how much I have changed, but I, I could only listen to about 20 minutes and then I, I, had, to, I had to move on. But back in the early nineties, I mean, this is when Republicans had been out of power for decades, uh, in Congress in terms of like shaping an agenda. As a very young person, I remember being feeling very liberated by this. You know, here are new ideas. I mean, even the whole 94 Republican revolution was kind of an exciting time where we were throwing off, you know, old established institutions and kind of trying to embrace new thoughts. I got a little disillusioned with the dot-com bubble. And I, I have to admit, getting sucked into it and uh, thinking, you know, I had figured something out that was brilliant and then, you know, having my Yahoo stock go from 240 to seven and realizing that I was just the sucker, right? Like I was the, I was the greater fool at the card table. And I, I'm glad I learned that on a thousand dollar bet and not a, you know, hundred thousand dollar bet. So it was, it was eye opening for me. So now let's fast forward to today. And, and with that backdrop, I have to tell you internal in my, in my brain, when you say cooperative, I have this reflexive reaction and I don't know what, I really don't know what it's from, but I'll tell you my reflexive reaction feels like, uh, this is some type of hippie commune kind of thing. Basically I have that kind of reaction to it. I, I have the, okay, that's a nice thought, but it's impractical at scale. It's, it's really not responding to how people work. Well, now, let me jump in for one second and remind you of a model that you're very aware of, but maybe not thinking about. Okay. Rural electrification. Right. That's cooperative. Yeah. 
You know, our, our yeah. former governor here, Mike Pence, who's a very conservative dude, as we know, he had a whole career of being a rah-rah guy for the rural electrification cooperatives. And it's a very odd kind of uncharacteristic thing, but I think it was a kind of a local or, or you know, uh, it was a group of friends that he knew in the agricultural community. And nobody thought it was socialist or hippie. It's just the way we got through the Depression, right? Right. I mean, I grew up on a farm and we weren't, you know, we weren't, uh, we had like, you know, 14 head of cattle. It's not like we were, you know, big business farming, but you, you, you interact with some of the guys who were. And I do know the cooperative buying and the cooperative selling on the farms was a real benefit to a lot of them. And I, I get that, but it was almost like a mini cartel kind of thing, uh, where, you know, we're all going to get together and everybody's going to give a little bit, but it's because, you know, we're going to have better leverage and, and be in a better bargaining position in a sense. Talk to me about what your vision of a cooperative is, because that, that farmer vision made a lot of sense to me. The rural electric cooperatives do to an extent, but sometimes they can also be kind of regressive and, and head in the sand, I've seen. I'll say one quick thing, and then I want to hear from Grace on this. The, the, the new kind of cooperativism is really a, a different kind of animal. And, and so part of it has to do with managing the gig economy. I mean, they're just, you know, jobs are no longer really jobs. Workers really have no security. They have no benefits. It is the precariat, not the proletariat, but the precariat. So, and particularly if you're a younger person. So the, the fact is, I mean, something like a cooperative approach uh, where your strength is in numbers is like the only way to push back on this just kind of incessant, inevitable you know, the word we often use is neoliberal sort of transformation of uh, our work life and our social life and everything else. How do we get around that? What is the alternative? Margaret Thatcher said, T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. We have to go this way. Well, you know, that, that seems very um, unliberated. So the cooperative thing, it's really just a kind of a localist. I think it's partly a localist reaction, a way of pushing back on on the matrix, on the system, and just trying to regain some agency, you know? Grace, what would you say? I don't think there are any panaceas. I don't think there's anything that's going to yeah. be, you know, the shot in the arm. I think there are things that are better. I think there are things that are worse. And I think there are things that are immoral, right? That, you know, regardless of whether it's better or worse, you know, you just shouldn't do that. And I kind of want to go back just a little bit to this idea that I think you actually want to carry your your notions all the way to their logical conclusion, <laughs> right? You're close. And yes, <laughs> yes. There's a redistribution of wealth that's happening, but it's it's always happening. It's from the poor to the rich, and, and so yes, that's absolutely happening, and it's wrong, and <laughs> it's from the poor to the rich. All that said, when I think of cooperatives, and I and I don't think they're actually I think they're older than 200 years, Elias, you know, Could be. you really Could go back be. and push back. And they're all over the map as far as how efficient they are. I think the thing that people experience and may know, and this may be my own bubble, people have always heard of a local food co-op or some such thing, some kind of hippie thing back in the 70s. You know, there aren't 
um, started a food co-op or was part of a food co-op or part of a buying club. And that's familiar to a lot of people, right? But cooperatives are part of the credit unions are cooperatives. They function quite well. They're very good at delivering what yep. they need to deliver. Yep. That's right. Um, Mondragon is a, is a very good large-scale example of a cooperative that's really pushed out other models to be the standard model in Spain, or a, pardon me, a region <clears> of <throat> Spain. And I think the thing that we have to understand about that coming to the surface and being functional had to happen in a vacuum where there was not any leadership from the centralized government. And that's a dangerous place because anybody can move into that vacuum. But it happened that in this vacuum, this cooperative took root. Um, so it can be all the way, it can be like Pioneer Sugar here in Michigan. It's a cooperative of sugar farmers. It can be like Ocean Spray, a little less cooperative than it used to be. They can be housing cooperatives. Cooperatives can, can take all kinds of form and shape, but their fundamental thing, the thing that they really change about the game is that it decentralizes what's happening and brings it close to the people who's, who are affected by the decisions. And that's a little thing we talk about in Catholic circles called subsidiarity. And you might hear it in other places as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that the reality about that is the further the de these decisions are made from the people who are affected, the less sense the decisions make. And what you see over time is that the, the decisions actually start to benefit the people who are making the decisions. That just seems like human nature to me. Of course, people are going to make decisions that benefit themselves. And like you were talking about the DFL and voting for this guy because you're going to get a raise. And I'm like, who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> like, who wouldn't? You know, of course you're going to vote for the guy. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I don't even think you can call that nefarious, you know. No, I, right. I don't think it's nefarious. Right. Right. It, it's sort of clannish, right? It's kind of clannish. Yep. I think a lot of Americans would find things that are clannish disturbing on their face. Mm -hmm. But that said, the notion, the reality that people are tribal should not shock us anymore. Right. Right. I mean, of course, we we look after ourselves and the people closest to us. Again, for self-interested reasons. And I don't want to quite get into this space where we're like, you know, people making self-interested decisions ultimately benefit us all. I don't think that's true. And I think we've seen that. I, mean, I think we've seen that borne out, that self-interested decisions across the board don't benefit us all. But decisions that are made close to home tend to work better by the people they're affected by. And actually, this is not like some kind of radical insight. Who was it? I mean, uh, maybe she was considered radical in some circles. Francis Molipe, you know, Diet for a Small Planet from back in the 70s. It's this old book. Um, the most important line in that book for me that I never hear anyone talk about is her assertion that food insecurity is most closely related to how far away food is produced from the people that need to eat it. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that really determines food insecurity. So the further away your food is produced, the less secure you are and the more vulnerable you are to exploitation, which, duh. Right. Makes know? perfect sense. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> we don't talk yeah. about that. We talk about vegetarianism. We talk about this. We talk about that, which are kind of window dressing for this really basic reality about how decentralized things have to be for them to function. I'm just thinking there's one other dimension, at least, on the cooperative thing, and that is uh, people don't quite get this. It was interesting to me to learn it, 
And then as a cooperative effort, that kind of a business uh, really builds social capital inside and outside. And one of the tricky things about getting a cooperative going, uh, Grace mentioned this big one in Spain, Mondragon. That is the famous kind of poster child. It's a multi-billion dollar, 50-year-old, tens of thousands of employees, employee-owned and managed enterprise. Um, it, it affects the whole region of northern Spain uh, in its economic activities. It has had almost no layoffs in its entire history. So it's an incredible model. And it it's, was based originally, it was founded by a priest and based on Catholic social teachings. So, so there are big models, scaled up models of this kind of thing. But, you know, there is a tricky thing. And that is, if you say to an employee of this co-op, you're not only going to be an employee, you're going to be an owner. You even have to understand the business dynamics here because you're going to be voting and you're going to be participating. And it's kind of like you're going to have two jobs here, you know, and uh, and not every not every employee thinks that's a great idea. Not, not everybody gets uh, how great it is to be an owner. But if you have that kind of solidarity, um, as I say, there's a lot of social capital around that. It's not like an ordinary business. Mm-hmm. Let me put out this reaction and and have you guys respond to it. I just finished a book. It's called The True Flag. And it, it was about uh, the McKinley, uh, essentially the war with Spain, basically the beginnings of American empire, the debate that we had in the very early days. Mark Twain was heavily involved in this. Teddy Roosevelt was heavily involved in this. Should the U.S. be a global power that seeks to conquer and essentially colonize other places, you know, take our, our rightful spot in the world? Or should we be true to our kind of original founding principles and have a more humble approach, uh, one that wouldn't be an imperialistic or expansionist? Of course, the language we use today, and I mean, the, we can see today who won that debate. <laughs> we even call the one side today isolationists. At the time, they were called patriots, and the other terms were called interventionists. And now they are, you know, uh, <laughs> isolationists and patriots. <laughs> well, glo- they're, they're, yeah, or globalists and isolationists. Yeah. So our, our language has changed. The fascinating thing, and maybe the discouraging thing to me about that book was while the political debate seemed pretty divided, 50-50, the American public did not. The American public seemed to embrace the idea of empire. The American public seemed to be supporting Teddy Roosevelt and not Mark Twain. The American public seemed to be fully behind the idea of a march to empire. I look today in 2017, and I see an American public that is not eager to embrace a co-op model, perhaps, but very eager to have uh, someone take care of, you know, whether it's Amazon, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever healthcare company, um, you know, whether it's the federal government, uh, very happy to have someone else take care of those things for us. Is the problem us or is there, are there things that we can and should do in the absence of kind of a, a national consensus that, maybe Washington doesn't have all the answers or or Wall Street can't fix every problem or Silicon Valley won't innovate our way out of this. What what, what do we do in the absence of a consensus on that? I think uh, the local is the only game in town. You know, it's it's the only place. It's the reason that people write books about cities uh, or rather mayors being the real innovators. 
because the only real innovation is down at the civic level. You know, you really can't do much, at the, not, hardly anything at the federal level. And even the state level is kind of hidebound. So what do we got left? We got our backyard. But I mean, that's a great empowering thing. I mean, that that is that is also a, a very gratifying and important uh, thing because it's also a zone of creativity. And if you want to get people engaged, as Strong Towns does, you say, "Hey, let's go get creative, man! Don't don't wait, go do it." Right. But I go to my local mayor and say, "Hey, let's get innovative." <laughs> And my yeah. local mayor is saying, yeah, we're, we just hired a grants writer and we're going after, uh, you know, state grant bonding money. money and a federal oh, grant. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my Woo! God. I, wanna, I just want to remind everyone, there's no panacea, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there are people where you are that want to see things be better. And maybe not even different exactly, but better. And understand that things, you know, aren't quite working out as they're going. <clears throat> and I think that the local realm is all that's left. Sometimes, many times, each place is different, and there are various things you can exploit in your community that have, uh, what do you call it, leverage points. One of the things that we have in Michigan is the ability to really connect on a county level. There's not a lot of um, flexibility in how things are done on a city level, and there's not a lot of flexibility unless you're actually in state government. But the county level is a very open space where things can can you know, be talked about, worked on, checked on, um, tried out. And you have to find the leverage point in your own community. Throughout rural New England, I'm from New England, and there's something called um, a town meeting. You guys may have heard of town meeting? Oh, yeah. In, in a lot of these communities, the legislative body still, in 2017, is the community. That's what the town meeting is for. It's mm -hmm. because they're the legislative body. It's a great <clears throat> leverage point. It's a place to have a really good conversation. Um, then they have, you know, first electmen or various elected officials that perform executive and judicial functions. But legislatively, it's the people themselves. And it's direct democracy in those spaces. Now, that, that's um, a great yeah. model. That, that's a model that we're all kind yeah. of familiar with because it's kind an American of. model. I, yeah. I, I want to throw out a different model. Chuck, have you ever heard of a group in Europe called City Makers? No, no. I, okay. I, this is some kind of a spinoff, I think, of kind of an Occupy thing back during the financial crisis in Greece and Spain and Italy and so on. These people, I mean, this is like saying we're, we're not only going to do some placemaking, we are going to create alternative structures. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of cooperatives, which is kind of a piece of this, I cannot remember in northern Italy, whether it's Milan or Bologna, half of the social services now being delivered in that city are from, you know, grassroots social cooperatives. They have replaced city government and basically, you could say, kind of gone into competition with them. It is mind boggling. They all these things around urban agriculture uh, you know, community building, vacancy, reuse. They, they do little experiments. They don't necessarily replicate them. Uh, they are very, uh, civically ambitious. As I say, it's kind of a DIY mentality. Um, but you've heard of makerspaces. These people are making cities and in other parts of the world too. You'll find these kinds of, um, alternative projects and alternative groups. And they're really inspiring. They're, they're part of a kind of a global movement 
uh, that it has to do with the way these economic forces are uh, impacting everybody. Grace, you, you and I met in Saginaw, and I, I gave a talk there. You arranged it. I, I was very appreciative of that opportunity. My impression of Saginaw, and feel free to correct me, is that this is a place that is, in many ways is pretty desperate. I hear the examples, and maybe my mind is thinking of this wrong. I sense that there needs to be a certain kind of maybe critical mass to make this work. Is this something that in a city like Saginaw, which I think we'd agree is is on the desperate end of the spectrum, is this a strategy that would work well in, in a place like that? Or is this something that is more of a Valparaiso kind of thing where you've got a certain level of of affluence and there's a university there organizing this stuff and, and you know, you've got uh, resources are on a different scale. Yes and no. There are a lot of things in Saginaw that are happening and working and frankly flourishing. They are not what anybody in sort of mainstream dominant culture would be excited by or into. And some of them are, are um, quasi-legal, but other things are other experiments that are really taken off um, because it's such a desperate place and people need something to fill that void and they want something that, that's, um, that's worthwhile to fill the void, right? One of the things I'm thinking of precisely um, is uh, Major Chords for Minors. It, it was kind of like this nonprofit thing that we're going to do music lessons and so on and because, yeah, uh, th- there's a lot of um, resources that used to be in Saginaw that aren't there anymore. So what they do is they provide music lessons, like I think guitar, piano, drums, percussion, et cetera, to, to school-aged children. They have a huge waiting list. It's really popular. They moved into a larger property. They were working like in an attic before. But now they're in uh, what is now closed public school, and they're filling the space. So it's it's a really amazing project that's taken off because it's in this place of desperation and it meets a local need. There are other realities that are harder in that in any place, you've got to keep the people there. And one of the problems Saginaw has is a lot of the people that have um, flexibility to do things, and I don't just mean financial, I mean all kinds of flexibility end up in a bind because they can't afford to stay there because there aren't, isn't enough work there. You know, you still got to pay your light bill. You still got to pay your water bill, etc. There are these anchoring institutions, even in Saginaw. They're the hospitals. They're uh, state agencies. People have jobs there. They're uh, state universities. People have jobs there and whatnot that keep people employed so they can continue to um, support and engage in these kinds of alternative institutions. But it's very real that the thing you find in places that are really kind of against the ropes is that people really only have one choice. They can go and work for whomever the employer is in the area. And they don't they really don't have a choice in the matter. They can work for that employer or they can leave. Those are the choices. It's this sort of catch tree too, where now, now that you're in that position, now that whomever the behemoth is has all the market share. How do you get anything else going in that context without kind of taking a sledgehammer to the the big thing, which will meet with great opposition because a lot of people depend on the big thing. So it really does present this catch between two in places that are up against the ropes like that. But if you can create fissures where there's an opening and you can get something going, 
then it really does have a, a lot of energy to take off because the place is so ready for something. I've seen this in Memphis, Tennessee, and to a lesser extent in Detroit, although Johnny Sanfilippo cued me in on some of this happening in Detroit. But in Memphis, where there are some truly desperate places, what you see is people operating. You said most of it is some of it is legal and you kind of left that hanging like maybe some of it is not. I'll finish that statement and say I've seen in Memphis places that are operating essentially outside of the regulatory environment. So they're not getting permits. They're not getting, you know, whatever inspections they need to do. And the stuff they're doing is really out of necessity. But when you step back and look at it, it's very beautiful and it's very resilient and sustaining and it meets a need that people have. I have to say, as someone who lives in a kind of homogeneous, I think you consider me safely like middle class, maybe upper middle class even. Certainly in this community, I- I'm doing well. You know, Brainerd tends to be a little bit poorer than the, the state average. There's a part of me that feels a certain level of-, of guilt and shame visiting a place like Memphis and seeing people who are clearly desperate and saying, well, isn't this wonderful? You know, and then go back to my house and, and uh, you know, every- everything is nice. Maybe help me deal with my squeamishness here in that. <laughs> and, oh. and maybe I should. No, that's maybe, good. Squeamishness is good. Well, maybe yeah, good. maybe I should feel some shame. Yeah. Yeah, well, ride with it. Well, not, yeah. It's, a, it's a motivator. It. It's a motivator. You it's know? a motivator. The stark reality that presents for us is that so these folks are doing these amazing things that are quasi-legal and leave them even more vulnerable than they already were to state prosecution and so on. And so on. You and I are in an excellent position to influence that reality for those folks. Perhaps not in Memphis, Tennessee, right? But for the folks who are trying to do good things, they're trying to meet needs, you know, they're not killing anybody. And there are those who counter this. They would counter this and say, well, you know, you don't, you don't get those inspections. You don't do this stuff. You have like this fire in Oakland and people die. And it's a horrible thing. And I agree, it's a horrible thing for people to die. And I'm not actually advocating that and I'm not advocating any of the sort of like the scary stories and scare tactics and the horror stories that have come out of these quasi-legal situations. What I'm talking about is good and valuable and something we can influence and talk to we're in a unique position to talk to legislators and various people about we may know them personally and so on is that you know what maybe having no way for people to legally sell food is a problem. And maybe we can look at places where there's been some mild deregulation on this, like California, where businesses were started, thousands of them, by allowing people to sell food made in their own homes. Maybe that's a thing that we could work with, and we can expand that and check it out and see how it benefits us. We have a great thing in Michigan uh, where you can, uh, the cottage food ordinance, you can sell food from your own home, various things that are likely not to have foodborne illnesses. And you can sell them to the farmer's market and direct to consumers. And it's great, right? Except the cap is $15,000. Right. So if you get really good at this. So it can be a hobby. I mean, it can be <laughs> right, a hobby. Right, right. But, you know, you can't make a living doing this. By law, you're not allowed to make a living doing this. And so now we've pushed some of these things that could be really great innovators you know, creating jobs and all the good things we love to talk about. Um, we've pushed it into this space where it's going to have to be quasi-legal. 
and maybe someone is going to get hurt. Yeah, because you're um, gonna have to you're gonna have to lie about your income or something like that, or something mm-hmm. like that. Right, right. And really, the place I'd like to see pay your taxes and you know the people that work for you, and then go home at the end of the day. If you really want to do that, it's gonna be more than fifteen thousand dollars a year. Um, and there are people who are poised to do it and can do it and should do it, and end up getting shut down. We're at this great point, this really fertile point in our society, and I know it doesn't feel fertile or good. Because it's so, it is so uncomfortable. And I think there's a lot of shame to go around, you know? Yeah. It's a great opportunity we have here. All these empty houses, all these empty lots, cities that need to be repopulated. If we want to do redistribution, and we do, we do want to redistribute. We just don't like to redistribute it to the poor. Now's the time and now's the place, now's the opportunity. Just give it to people. Let them try something. And, you know, a lot of them are going to fail, and that's okay. That's okay. It's probably better than what we have now. Even our imaginations are kind of privatized. We, we can't imagine easily another model than the one we've got. But, you know, I mentioned IKEA um, that I went to Brazil about five years ago and took a tour of a favela. That's and some people would argue a favela is like the ultimate libertarian Success. That would be right? my argument. Yeah. Yeah. That's true in a way. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But it's amazing because it's not on the American model. This is not like the West Side of Chicago. The government, at least historically, has never been involved. They have, they have completely ignored these neighborhoods. And so you have a kind of a subsistence economy or a little better than subsistence and, and self organized to the point where there, there are now tourist tours through favelas. Um, they are problematic. Some of them have had terrible drug and crime problems. Um, and I, I think they're like a third of the population of Rio or something, uh, in other similar cities, but they are amazing in the way they are self-organized, functioning, vibrant, raw and flexible communities. They're, they're very adaptive. They're very weird to an American. And, and they also go on in an incredibly multiracial way. So I'm telling you, just a couple hours walking around, and it will just blow your mind. And I know that the folks, there are folks that will counter, but 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 health disparities and and poverty and a long list of bad things. Hmm. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I I hear you, and I agree with that, largely. But I think the reality is that a, we like to think of ourselves as doing much better, and we're not. Mm-hmm in our sort of, you know, better organized, well-regulated society. It's good for a few and not good for many. But more than that, I think the true test is not so much what you think of it or I think of it or Chuck thinks of it, but what the people that live there think of yeah. it. Yeah. And people that live there, this love is their it. home. They love oh. it. Oh, yep. And, and that's, that's the answer. More yep. so or less so than any of the sort of metrics that an American or an outsider of any kind would apply to what their lives look like. Let me ask this, and I, I don't know where this question is going to go, but I'll give you a little bit of the the pushback that I get when I talk about decentralization. And then I'm, I, I'd like to relate it to Catholicism a little bit so we have a common way to maybe frame this. So I, one of the pushbacks that I always get is, okay, Chuck, um, 
that's great. Decentralization. But now you're just going to be right back to segregated drinking fountains and oppression and, you know, the kind of the, the worst of despotic America. I mean, let's just go back to, you know, the, the 1700s and, uh, you know, go all the way to indentured servants and just let the poor work directly for the rich till they can, you know, work their time off. I think when it comes to Catholicism, I, I know when we talk about divorce at the local level, priests in the idea, true idea of subsidiarity, uh, have the ability to kind of work with people. I, I know people who are Catholic who have gone through divorces and gotten annulments and, you know, are encouraged to, to take communion and be part of a mass and, and, you know, no, you're not ostracized. How do we deal with this? At the local level, the way things kind of function in a cooperative sense is a certain level of social pressure that I find healthy and positive. But when I step back and I, I hear from other people who have live in this kind of more secular, more liberal, more liberated society, find that type of, you know, social pressure that comes from relationships and community, find that to be stifling. How do we talk about this in a way that deals with that concern? You know, I, I've got just one thought on this. I, I want to recommend a book called um, Paradise Based in Hell. I, I've woman. read it and I love it. You know that book? Isn't that a great book? Beautiful book. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, if, if, there's, if it's a fear-based society, which is, I think, where we are, mm -hmm. then what you're describing is going to be very difficult. I mean, you know, didn't I certainly grew up thinking we finally got this race thing worked out. Or I, 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 like, I right? I, I grew up <laughs> anti Semitism. That's history. That's history. Oh, yeah. That's over. That's over. Well, so on the other hand, the great thing that Rebecca Solna talks about is how crisis, this kind of crisis, the shock doctrine and so on, also creates community. So yes. I don't see any way to get around um, you know, the the hope that we can recreate community. It'll be a different kind. It'll have a different focus. It'll have a different feel. And, and that if, if it's the right kind and the circumstances are right, you know, it isn't going to be like um, Mississippi in the 50s. It's going to have to be something different and it's going to have to be organized differently. And, you know, I think we just have to have um, kind of a political hope that that outcome, that kind of outcome is possible. What do you think, Grace? Well, I think there's no going back, right? You can't. So on the one hand, that's great. We won't experience those things again. On the other hand, there are a lot of missed opportunities where we could have done things differently at oh, yeah. an earlier juncture. And and to the folks that, that really kind of give that pushback, oh, my goodness, segregated drinking fountains. Oh, my goodness, segregation. Oh, my goodness, what horrible things will happen. Two things. We frankly have a lot of that right now anyway, you know, mm -hmm. and we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to, um, we, we like to tell the story in a different way that doesn't highlight those realities. That's number one. But number two, it actually can't be both ways. Either you will have centralized control that, um, that really damages us all in a, in a large, in, you know, in, in a really focused way in the way it extracts our wealth and our autonomy. Or you can have localized control and interrelational social pressures. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got to choose which one you're more comfortable with. And frankly, there are a lot of people who are more comfortable with their workaday job and centralized control and making the sacrifices that need to happen to continue doing that rather than responding to the pressures of being committed to a family, to a community, to a religious community, um, and and a social network, a social fabric. They don't want those commitments. Yeah. They are tiresome. They're hard to manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're hard. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of those pressures, you know, they have tensions that can't be resolved. I really feel like we have a culture at this point in history. We have a culture that doesn't even know how to manage those tensions or how to engage them in a creative and fruitful way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or how, like, if you've got an unhealthy situation, the, the sort of extreme model of people say, well, what if you've got this horrible family life and it's abusive and there's all kinds of terrible things happening to the children and so on. What then? How can you have a family as a building block of society? How can you protect children in those situations or um, women or et cetera, or any kind of vulnerable person? And to that I say, you know, it's hard to protect vulnerable people because someone's always going to sacrifice. It's hard to do. And yep. it's hard to be on an interpersonal level and say, hey, Bob, I think you're beating your wife and I think you need to stop. No one wants to have that conversation. But that's the kind of conversation you're going to have to have for these relationships and localized, hyper-localized spaces to work. You're going to have to be honest and you're going to have to say, you know, this is not what we're about. It's never been what we're about. And you have to stop. And we have to have a mechanism for, to then censure Bob. And your apologies to any Roberts listening. But that's, <laughs> that's reality. And that has to happen in some way. And right now we outsource that to the police or to the fire yep. department or to yep. all these different agencies. Yep. And there are attendant realities with doing that. Right. That we don't like either. Yeah, we lock people up. and uh, Lock them up. Right. You know, we do all kinds of things. And those are our solutions to those problems, to externalizing those problems and those conversations from our day-to-day lives. And I don't mean to say or suggest that some of these um, – like, you know, fires ought to be fought with a bucket brigade of neighbors. That's not where I'm going with this at all. But rather, um, some of these problems that we want to solve about how we fund the fire department and what the fire department needs to have need to be more localized conversations that will be hard to have and they will be unpleasant. Right. It's not like this, it, it, but there's no solution that has no unpleasantness. There's you, no you tiny solution. That's, you know, comfortable and fun mm. and everyone's happy. It's not out there because our racism, our anti-Semitism, our sexism, our whatever ism it is, will always be with us. It's not going anywhere. And we're going to have to confront it one way or another. And mm-hmm. as far as I can say, we've not really done a good job confronting it in the systems we're currently using. It, it's, it's, it's not working. And we like to think it's not working. We like to think it is working and things are getting better. And uh, just a small bit of personal background. My father was a civil rights attorney and uh, prosecuted a lot of police brutality cases in the 50s and the early 60s. And um, he passed away in 2007. And I remember a conversation where I had with him in the late 90s, early 2000s. I was talking about the sort of, you know, um, racially insensitive episode I'd had with uh, I was taking a woman to the hospital who couldn't get to the hospital on her own. And she was really 
treated abusively. And um, I was telling my father about this. He says, you know, it was never this bad. You know, things were bad in the 50s and 60s, but it was never, it was never quite as bad as it is now. So we living now in the late 90s and 2000s and now in 2017 have this notion that things are so much better. But having lived and prosecuted at that time and place and having lived more recently, things have really gotten worse for a lot of people who are really marginalized and have no space to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I think once we start to peel that onion and look at how bad things really are for vulnerable people, we might be a little more ready to try something that, you know, it might not work. And yeah, it's going to be hard, but it'll be worth trying something different. It was over a decade ago. I got to spend about a week in Brooklyn, New York, uh, living with a Hasidic Jew community. And, you know, as a Catholic from central Minnesota, this was a culture <laughs> shock. <laughs> it's an experience. Yeah. Right, right. And, and it's a long story is how I wound up there, but it was, it, I was going to tell a, a little brief thing about one thing that happened to me that I, I thought was just beautiful uh, and indicative of the way that I envision local communities working, the, the way I wish mine would more, quite frankly, and I'll take the blame for it. I'm in this house and, you know, when I say house, it was an apartment with two bed, one bedroom, one living room that served as a, as a kind of a bedroom in the evening, uh, a tiny little kitchen and a tiny little bathroom. And this was a typical Hasidic Jewish family. They had four kids, uh, more on the way, and they were crammed into an apartment that was smaller than my college dorm room, really. And they were happy. I mean, they, they, their whole rituals of, the meals and the Sabbath and the way they went about their week. I, I found it just beautiful. But I came there once and we walked in and there were these two kids that were, were, I had not seen. Like, who are these kids? And they were in a playpen and they said, well, you know, there is a family that is, you know, goes to our synagogue. They're having some marital problems. They're having a difficult time. And so we agreed to take their kids you know, and, and look after them while they have some time to, to work on things. I looked at this and, and my reaction was, I don't know as I would do that. You know, like me, maybe I would for my brother, you know, uh, maybe I would for some of my close friends, but this was just someone in their synagogue. It was, I said, do you really know? Yeah, I kind of, I mean, I know who they are, but they're not, you know, and, and someone needed help and here they were. So, already overcrowded, already, you know, uh, bursting at the seams. And now you add two more toddler kids uh, who are, you know, Grace, you know, uh, at this moment, not always easy to handle. And I looked at this and I thought, this is the kind of beautiful thing that do, am I just idealizing that this is the way things used to be? Or is, is this actually the way things would naturally be in the absence of, of other you know, other things taking that burden away from me. And it's the, it's the way things are for a lot of the planet right now, this minute, right? Right. I, well, That's a great, I, story. I, great story. I remember hearing this, um, this uh, tribe in the Amazon getting pushed out of the forest because of all kinds of different pressures. And they merged into this modern town, not a city, but like this little town. They had cars and Wi-Fi, et cetera. 
And they came out and they're like, whoa, what's going on here? We're displaced, et cetera. And so like the various central agencies got them settled, found a place to stay, et cetera, et cetera. And someone talked to them about six weeks, two, three months in. They'd been there a little while and said, so what do you really like about about modern society? You know, what's really great here? And they're like, wow, you know, these cast iron pans are amazing. <laughs> and your onions and the rice out of this world. <laughs> but like other than that, they were good. So like all of human progress from hunter-gatherer society, their big takeaway was that, you know, they could use cast iron pans, onions, and rice. That would be all right. Not small things. There's some agriculture implied, some smelting implied, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's easy for us to think, wow, what would life be like if we stripped away all the things that we're so comfortable with and what would replace it? Um, there's a whole life and culture that they had that replaces all these other things. And they had the perspective to look and say, hey, these are the things we would like to take from modern society. But a lot of it, we're happy as we are, as half-naked hunter-gatherers in the rainforest. We're actually pretty good. We're doing all right. And I think it's an important question. It's a critical question of what would fill these spaces if, you know, if we took away modern society. What those hunter-gatherers had that we do not is they had a culture and tradition that they were followed that they had been following and knew and understood, and that was largely I won't say intact, but um, they had it. It was in living memory, and they could return to it as a compass. So the thing I think we really run into is if we have no compass and we just have a void, we are lucky to find something good to fill voids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because anything can fill that void. Anything can go. And really, it's got to be the people with the most power and influence that happen to be there that get into the spot where they can fill the void, right? Um, so I think the really critical thing, alongside decentralization and moving away from some of the other binaries we've gotten really sucked into in modern life, and especially in the American landscape, is to understand that when we talk about a moral code, we're not saying you have to go back to church, all you folks who hate going to church. <laughs> We're talking about an actual thing that matters in how we organize our lives. Like, the, you know, the market's not going to just provide good things for us in a vacuum. It'll provide whatever, you know, flourishes there. So absent some kind of um, moral framework, really bereft to get the right things to flourish where we want them to flourish. And I think of it as this sort of like, um, if you will, as an analogy, there's sort of wild nature, untouched, beautiful and raw. You also die there very quickly. And then there's post, post, post agricultural revolution <laughs> with mega farms and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, you don't get bitten by bugs very often and, the food's always on the shelf, but there's only a three-day supply. And I don't think we necessarily have to choose one of the extremes. I think we can pick anything on the continuum from wild nature to post-post-post-agricultural revolution. The one I like is the horticultural revolution where we cultivated and worked alongside nature. I thought that was really good. If you read about it, it's very nice. And there's a lot of culture and identity and um, cultural memory that we can recover about how to live in a world that's more in touch with 
one another relationally and with um, the natural world and how we can benefit from it and benefit the natural world. Mm-hmm. Let me close by asking you this. You guys have both been involved with Strong Towns for a long time. As you look to us doing things in the future, how would you, if we were going to capture the essence of this conversation, how would that be reflected in the things that we write and the things that we say in the, in the things that we communicate with people? What would you recommend to us in, in terms of bringing these ideas forward? Well, let me give you an example. I am, you know, getting pinged this week a lot uh, because the infrastructure issue is coming back up at the national level. We're going to spend a, a trillion dollars on infrastructure. And I've been, you know, interviewed in, in two different publications this week uh, on an, another podcast. Well, how would you spend this money, Chuck? What would you do? To go to our conversation here is a long leap to do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right. In, the, in the two paragraphs I'm usually allowed. How would we as strong towns, uh, because we're largely communicating to an Americanized population of people uh, who tend to be, you know, middle class, certainly well-connected. How would we start to communicate these ideas and, and open people up to thinking about them when, like you say, they're kind of painful at times. They kind of hurt. They're, they're a little bit more of a struggle. I think long term, it's a better struggle than the one we're having. How do you convince people that diet and exercise is good when they got a, a life of sugary, fatty foods? <laughs> I'll let Grace go first. Thanks, Elias. That's very good. <laughs> that was a huge <laughs> question. My God. My God. Diet and exercise is good, but they got all the sugary, fatty foods they want. My mom always let us eat whatever we'd like. And then when we got sick from eating whatever we'd like, she say, you know, I got a little soup over here and some nice fresh vegetables. Why don't you have a, why don't you tuck in? And, you know, at that point, we were so miserable, we probably would. <laughs> and I think the people you want to talk to are really the folks that are already miserable. Yep. They've had a full, a full fatty, sweet meal. They've been ill, they're feeling terrible, and they're ready to hear something different. So, first of all, you've got to pinpoint that as the people you're talking to. Secondly, I think it's actually critical to step outside of your bubble, whatever it is, because all of us have got got bubbles we live in. Step outside your bubble, and really, the great question you asked me was, how's that going to work for somebody who's desperate? Whatever it is you're thinking about, whatever is money you're going to spend, whatever you're going to do, how's that going to work for someone who's desperate? Does that even work? I think those two things are where probably where you want to go. Talk to people who are already sick and tired of being sick and tired. And then <laughs> um, talk about solutions that work for the most vulnerable people because invariably they help us all. I'll add two little quick things. That was great, Grace. I like that. You know, Chuck, you write about the design for all ages. I, I love the fact that you go, you're not afraid to go way back in history and kind of make these comparisons. I, I wonder if we're in this conversation, we're moving toward trying to think about what's the economy for all ages? What is that? Is it, it, it can't just be the American model, the American experiment. It's got to be right. something else. And the second thing is, as Grace has really well said, part of the Strong Towns Project not necessarily explicit, 
But like so many wonderful things about strong towns, it's between the lines. It's got to do with reconciliation. Because there is a real public health, uh, community, psychosocial dimension to what's going on here. And if you look in some directions, it can be mildly terrifying. And if you look in other directions, you can think, wow, this is a wonderful kind of new feeling of something that is beginning to well up. I, I love the, the way the fact you've built an umbrella that is big enough to keep a lot of different kinds of animals in the tent. And that's, that's good. So this is just, uh, you know, maybe the tent's just a little bit bigger, but otherwise it's, it's great stuff. I knew that I would get a lot out of this conversation. I got way more than I thought I would. So hey, thanks. Thank Let's you. Oh, can I send you my book list? I'll send you my book list. <laughs> Grace, I would love you. I would deeply covet your book list. It's only 30 pages long. Yeah, it's short. Sure, I edited it down. It's good stuff. Good, thanks, thanks. Thank you, Chuck. Hey, thank you, Grace Potts and Elias Krim. Thanks for being on the Strong Towns podcast. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Loved it. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. That was fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.